We're back and we're talking about nuclear energy with our guest, Gwyneth Cravens. Well, proliferation, that's an issue we could probably do an entire show on, but, but as it relates to nuclear power plants, uh, nuclear expert Rip Anderson told you that um, the way we manage spent nuclear fuel has had zero effect on nuclear proliferation. And can you explain why that is? Well, uh, let me start with the United States. None of the commercial nuclear plants, uh, the, the waste from them, is used in any way for military purposes. Probably a big reason it's not used is, one, it's very hard to extract the, uh, the uh, plutonium that's formed as a waste byproduct, makes up 1% of the uh, waste that's in spent nuclear fuel, and it's formed in the reactor. It would be a big hassle to get that plutonium out. But the United States government uh, owns a huge supply of plutonium that they made in special production reactors at Hanford. That's kept in bunkers in, in uh, remote areas in case we want to get into the, you know, go big time back into nuclear weapons production. Mm -hmm. So no, no nuclear plant in the United States is going to contribute to proliferation. So that's step one. And since the U.S. is one of the biggest greenhouse gas emitters and we need to have more nuclear plants in the United States, proliferation should not be on the table when discussing nuclear power in the U.S. But if we talk about the uh, increasing reactors around the world, it's not the commercial nuclear plants. It's not the civilian nuclear plants that are the problem. And the plutonium, by the way, that uh, can be harvested from spent fuel is an isotope called plutonium-240. And it's terrible for making a bomb. It's highly unstable. It's thermally hot. It's very hard to handle. Very difficult to make a bomb from it. If you manage to do so, you'd have to use it immediately because <laughs> it has a very short shelf life Right. because it's so hot. So who's going to bother to do all that and have this huge plant to harvest that little bit of plutonium when they can just have a uranium enrichment plant uh, with centrifuges and get highly enriched uranium that way and make uranium bombs. There has been, not been one instance in the entire history of civilian nuclear power around the world where any kind of spent fuel from a nuclear plant has been used to make a nuclear weapon. It's always been from either reactors that producing the plutonium or from uranium enrichment plants. And that's what Pakistan has, that's what North Korea has. All these guys that you know we're worried about, like Iran right now, wants to do uranium enrichment. And uh, the rest of the world and the International Atomic Energy Agency and the UN keep saying, you can have nuclear power, that's great, but we'll supply the low enriched fuel for your plant. You don't need a uranium enrichment plant. But of course the Iranians apparently seem to want to have a uranium enrichment plan. That's all hard to know what's really going on. But proliferation as an issue really is not coupled in the real world with civilian nuclear power. The uranium enrichment plants, yes, you need an enrichment plant to make fuel for your uh, nuclear plant, and you can ramp up that enrichment process to make bomb-grade uranium. That's the problem. So one solution is to have an international consortium, maybe run by the UN and the International Atomic Energy Agency, cooperating to supply low-enriched fuel to various countries that have reactors and discourage them from having uranium enrichment plants. So they would lease the fuel to, say, Brazil, Argentina, various countries, 
and then when the fuel is it's time to be taken out of the reactor, the, this consortium comes and gets the fuel and takes it away and reprocesses it to make new fuel and controls the enrichment. The book is Power to Save the World, The Truth About Nuclear Energy. We're speaking with author Gwyneth Cravens. Nuclear waste is, is something that's going to exist no matter what we do in the future, no matter whether we expand nuclear power or not. And there, there, was a, there was a line I wanted to quote from your book. Whether or not we approve of nuclear power, the waste exists and something has to be done with it, and yet it does seem some people sort of act as though this, this can be ignored. Well, uh, one position of anti-nuclear power people is, well, the bad nuclear plants that, that made it should be punished. by That's their problem. You know, nuclear power contributes 20% of our electricity to the grid. So that means we're all using nuclear power. In California, some of our electricity is coming from nuclear plants. So we're enjoying that. And so I tend to think that we ought to feel responsible for the waste that's produced by the electricity we use. Electricity uh, extends life in countries where they don't have it. The lifespan is... 43 years. In countries with a little bit of electricity, the lifespan is somewhat longer. Electricity is really important. Uh, I arrived here just in time to, uh, for the power failure in the Central Coast. <laughs> and so we had like a day and a half without power. Mm-hmm. It was really uh, difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, well, this is how, you know, what it's like in India, for example, where power outages are common. So what about the waste? What about the 50% of electricity we get from coal and the 100 million tons of waste, uh, which is hazardous waste, by the way. It's not classified as such, but it contains all these bad things that we've been talking about earlier. The volume of waste from nuclear power is about one millionth the volume of coal-fired waste. It's quite a statistic. And there was something I read in your book I'd never seen anywhere else. This uh, was an idea cited by Rip Anderson of how a sensible way of dealing with the waste might be to basically put it in devices that can be dropped in the North Pacific that will go two miles, four miles down, sink into the muck down there, and not, and basically, you know, be out of everyone's hair from then on. Yeah, a whole study was done of this back in the early 1980s. Uh, it was an international study. Uh, it was uh, various oceanographic institutes around the world, uh, academic institutions, uh, it's a cooperative effort. It was led by Rip Anderson. And it was to study whether this was feasible, whether there could be international nuclear waste storage done in the deep seabed. So it would be under like six kilometers of water in the middle of an ocean desert, the middle of a tectonic plate. Not the edge, right? Which is where all the, you know, the vents are and mm-hmm. the interesting crabs and things are. No, it, this is desert. There's just almost no life. So it's very barren, and it's a muck, and you put the uh, high-level waste in pointed canisters, and it just keeps sinking down and down into this deep muck, and nobody is going to get at it. And it's not going to... It's, it's basically out of the biosphere. So that uh, project was very promising, but then the United States did not want to um, share... <laughs> You know, it wanted to kind of hold on to some of its uh, materials and so on, and but that didn't stop it. What stopped it was um, successful campaign at, at Greenpeace. 
Well, that may that may be a topic that has to be returned to at some point in the future, being that Yucca Mountain, I think, remains rather uncertain. And I guess the Democrats were just arguing about it the, uh, the other night. Well, they weren't arguing it about it. <laughs> Actually, they were uh, the Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and John Edwards were debating in Nevada. I think that if you're a Democrat and you cross the state line, you uh, Harry Reid won't let you in to the state unless you promise to denounce Yucca Mountain and yeah. pledge to be opposed to it. I'm joking. I don't really know about that. But well, I did see a headline that the, the sex workers in Vegas were organizing a protest to it, so I thought, boy, this is... <laughs> this is it. I mean, you know, it's, it's strange for politicians to be campaigning for people's votes when Yucca Mountain, uh, if it got up and running, would bring in 1,500 high-tech jobs. And according to polls, the young people in Nevada want high-tech jobs. They don't all want to work in the hospitality industry. They don't all want to be strippers. And those high-tech jobs, you know, bring in a, a kind of biggest vendor kind of people. So I was disappointed in the, the level of the discussion in the debate about nuclear power and about Yucca Mountain. It may be that Obama said, well, we'll have to do something about the nuclear waste. And his idea was to convene a scientific panel to look at the options. In fact, that's what's been being done <laughs> about nuclear waste for many decades. And uh, Yucca Mountain, uh, Edwards said, well, the science wasn't any good. That is not true. Uh, there's a gigantic amount of data that has been generated by studying Yucca Mountain. And when you do a vast amount of research, there is some, there's going to be good stuff, and there's going to be not-so-good research. There's going to be good experiments that are very sound and hold up to peer review, others that don't. Um, Sandia National Labs has taken over uh, the running of Yucca Mountain. It had no lead lab before, so the science was kind of done willy-nilly. The management was poor on the part of the Department of Energy. Now it's on track with good science, good peer review. They have a lot of solid data. That actual uh, location, the the mountain itself and the region, that's been deeply studied. It looks like Yucca Mountain is going to be okay. Uh, Furthermore, the the spent fuel will be in special alloy casks deep inside a mountain. It's very arid. Very little water can get in there. Uh, The heat from the spent fuel will evaporate the water. Uh, it's, uh, the, the, the way the water travels through the rock in the mountain has been, ex, you know, excruciatingly carefully studied. It's just the science is good. I'm sorry that John Edwards said that. It's not true. Well, I'm sorry he said quite a few things, but that's another story. Yes. Uh, well, Gwyneth, we're up against it on time. I, I, I have, as we wrap it up, I have to ask you, what, what do you see as the greatest obstacle to nuclear power being seriously enlisted in our battle against rising CO2 levels and global warming? There are a couple of uh, obstacles. Uh, on the one hand, you have public perception, which is shifting. L.A. Times did a poll. 71% of the people under the age of 29 think that uh, nuclear power should be used to help deal with global warming. Uh, and 54% of Democrats, actually, in that poll. So the public opposition is not what it used to be, and it's not what it used to be even among liberal Democrats. Even Harry Reid, who doesn't like Yucca Mountain, says if the choice is between coal and nuclear, and by the way, that is our choice, those yes. are the two forms of baseload we have, yes. he would choose nuclear. And Nancy Pelosi has uh, come out in favor of nuclear power and, and 
Barbara Boxer and several others. In fact, the Democratic Leadership Council has come out in favor of exploring nuclear power. So there's hope that the public perception will shift and the political picture, which used to be liberal Democrats opposed, uh, right-wing Republicans for, that it's all going to stop being politicized. And and, uh, that alone will help public perception because people will be better educated by both sides of the aisle about what, what the realities are. So that's, so that's one obstacle. Just in terms of building a lot of new, new nuclear plants, which we need to do, just getting the reactor vessels made, they have to be made in Japan. We don't have the industry in the United States anymore to do it. Wow. There is a, a problem with enough nuclear engineers, but we can always import them. There are you know, the Soviet Union produced some really good nuclear engineers, believe it or not. So we need to educate uh, the technical community to to deal with new nuclear plants. So that, those are some obstacles. They're not insurmountable. None of them are. You know, in World War II, in just a year or two, we started making battleships and uh, atomic bombs. <laughs> you right. know, if you, if, you, if you have the will, you can do it. Uh, Hillary Clinton said a good thing uh, when someone brought up about, well, nuclear power is dangerous. She said, look, we're Americans. We have technology. We know, we know how to handle these things. We can do it. And I, I wanted to say, well, we're already doing it. We already have had 50 years of safe operation of nuclear plants. Well, Gwyneth, I, I think you've made an excellent case for why we need nuclear power in our future, and I hope uh, listeners do take the time to read it. I would like to, uh, to close by quoting what Paul Newman had to say about Power to Save the World. A persuasive and well-researched book that flies in the face of a lot of popular opinion about nuclear power. The energy issue is one that haunts our country, and this kind of clear-eyed presentation is a help. It's a real education in the subject. So Gwyneth Cravens, I want to thank you very much for speaking with us, especially by taking vacation time to do so. Well, it was my pleasure, Douglas. Thank you very much for having me. That just about does it for today's program. Our thanks to Gwyneth Cravens, who we very much hope we will have on again. We have another special guest for next week's program. This will be Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter David K. Johnson. We'll talk to him about his new book, Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans Enrich Themselves at Government Expense and Stick You with the Bill. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time.